0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. On today's episode, I speak with Mike Franklin, co-director of UC Berkeley's Amplab and chair of the Department of Computer Science at the University of Chicago. Amplab is well known to the data community for having originated Apache Spark, Aluxia, which was formerly called Tachyon, and many other open source tools. Today marks the start of a two-day symposium commemorating the end of Amplab. And we took the opportunity to reflect on Amplab's many impressive accomplishments. And full disclosure, Mike Franklin and I are both advisors to Databricks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, Mike Franklin, welcome to the Data Show. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. So I think many people uh, are familiar with you as being the director of Amplab, but you're now recently... Computer science chair at the University of Chicago. But before we dive into Chicago and Amplab, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, what you were doing before Amplab happened. And I think I, we originally reg- met uh, when you were doing a startup called Trevisa, which was this generation of startups post dot com bust. So somewhere, somewhere, I think it was during the era of Web 2.0, right?
1: Yeah. It was um, so yeah. So uh, Trevisa was a, a company that spun out of some work we were doing at, at Berkeley on a system called Telegraph CQ, and it was uh, it was a streaming, uh, you know, real time query engine uh, that actually allowed you to to run SQL uh, over over data streams as they were flowing into the system. And uh, so yeah, so everyone else was doing Web two dot but we were still doing enterprise.
0: But then it was, uh, it seemed like there was a bunch of academic projects that resulted in startups around the same time.
1: Yeah, we, um, we were out at around the same time. There's a company called Streambase. Uh, there's a company called correlate. Um, there were a few other companies around it. I call it, it was kind of the second generation of, of these streaming analytics companies. And of course now, you know, there's a whole bunch of, uh, interest again in, in this kind of real time processing, but, uh. Yeah, there were a bunch of us out there. When was that? Mid-2000s, I guess. And uh, we were motivated. Actually, it's interesting. We were motivated by uh, what people are calling Internet of Things uh, types of, of applications. So at, at Berkeley, in the you know around the turn of the century, there was this project on, uh, on wireless sensor modes. And uh, there were a bunch of people really across campus got excited about these things. As database people, we thought it would be interesting and useful to be able to run SQL on them. Uh, and so we had a project that did that called TinyDB. And then the idea was to then have the data flowing from queries running on these sensor networks into an engine that could run queries on them in real time as the data was coming in. And then, you know, the, the, the grand uh, strategy was then to say, okay, now we can run SQL everywhere from the data center all the way out to the very edge of the network. Um, and, and if that sounds familiar to people that are thinking about Internet of Things, um, uh, that's what we were thinking about.
0: That's interesting, because you were you were ahead of your time in two dimensions. One, the real time <laughs> before people re- actually had yeah. real real time data, and then also IoT. So you had right. you had. Um, a, I don't I
1: don't remember who. Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
0: No, no. You had a yeah, yeah, yeah. They system too that used SQL because now nowadays I don't know if you're following the streaming uh, framework uh, space, but all of them are starting to support SQL too. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it yeah, it it it's um you realize that it, it it for all its, you know, oddities and 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 weird aspects, it's actually a pretty nice way to answer a lot to to specify a lot of the questions that you want answered over a stream of data. Um but I was just going to say there was a, there was a uh, some investor I can't remember who had the famous quote saying that uh, you know, th- th- there's
0: basically no difference between being early and being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so this was actually, this was before Twitter even. So, you know, uh, in the early days of this generation of stream processing frameworks that we have now, most of them, right? So they will show you some example using Twitter data.
1: Yeah, it's funny because we we knew we realized pretty quickly we were ahead of time for the sensor and IoT types of applications. So we pivoted uh, to other applications. Uh, financial services, we actually did, did quite a bit of business there. Security was really good. But we had a, a vision uh, for, for trying to process uh, text in real time, and we actually had a, had a uh, relationship with a company called Technorati that was doing blogs. Oh, publishing. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we, we had some really interesting uh, systems running where we were watching uh, we were watching blogs in real time and, and, and you know showing you know which terms were co-occurring with each other in real time and, and how those were trending and so on. Um, so yeah, you
0: know. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but uh, but at some point I think uh, when I when at some point when we were talking about Trevisa and Trevisa was still around you guys were also doing ad tech right?
1: Yeah, we were we were definitely um, involved with uh, some ad tech. We actually call centers was another application that, that was using our stuff. And 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 just uh, for the record, in case people don't know the story, so uh, we we eventually were acquired by Cisco, who was one of our customers. And my understanding is Treviso Software is playing at least some role in their Internet of Things product line. So so that vision actually
0: did end up happening. So I've had a several database professors and researchers on this podcast, and I always ask them this question. What did you think of Hadoop MapReduce when you first heard about it and it first came out?
1: Oh, uh, OK. And do people answer honestly? <laughs> or?
0: <laughs> yes. So I ha- I've had, uh, I've had uh, obviously, Mike Caffarella on here. Yeah. Uh, so he you know, and then Joe Hellerstein and Ihab Ilyas. Uh yep. I think Mike was saying, you know, I was asking Mike, so what did you think about that famous uh post by Stonebreaker about, you know, oh this thing is bad, it doesn't support sequel.
1: <laughs> he yeah. said he
0: said he got mad, but then of course o- over time he realized these guys are right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they were they were right, but but only at that
1: moment of time, right? So I actually started my my uh, research career working on parallel database systems. Uh, I worked on a system called BUBBA uh, that was developed at MCC in Austin, Texas, uh, back in the day. And um, I think a lot of us who were working on parallel database systems, you know, early on, had the same reaction, which is, you know, there's nothing new here, and a lot of the important things that you need to do in a system like that, um, you know, aren't supported. So, and and that's what you know the Stonebreaker and Dewitt, uh, you know blog posts were basically talking about. Um, I think a lot of us underestimated uh, and didn't realize something really fundamental, though. And and by us, I mean database people. Um, the, the the key thing that Hadoop. So so yes, you know the the ideas of how to parallelize, um, you know, data intensive queries. I mean that stuff was well known. You could argue, you know, maybe scalability wasn't quite what was needed. You, know, you, you, you could argue, but, but the basic techniques were, were very well known, of course. Um, but what people, database people didn't realize was that the traditional database, uh, you know, database systems make a deal with the user. They say, you give us your data, we're going to take it into this proprietary format, and we're basically going to lock it behind a wall. And as long as you let us do that, we're going to provide you a lot of good things. We're going to give you, you know, automatic Uh, you know, query optimization, we're going to give you transactions. If you need those, we're going to give you, uh, you know, recovery and so on. But, you know, the the other side of the bargain is you lose control of your data. You know, the the, the database ingests it and puts it into some format that the only way you can get to it is, you know, through this narrow database interface. And I think what a lot of us didn't realize was the importance of uh, allowing people to actually get at their data uh, in all sorts of ways, including, you know, just running grep over it if that's what they wanted right, to do. Right, right, right. And, and, and uh, you know, what Hadoop did was really reduce the friction for, you know, people who wanted to get data into an analytic system and then process it, you know, however they wanted. And of course, once they got used to doing that, they realized that a bunch of things that they wanted to say actually might be said better in SQL. Um,
0: but, you know, first you got to get them started, so... Uh, and so, you know, what about the whole notion of thinking of things in terms of data flows? Was that something that the academic research community was also?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if you look at if you look at the inside of a of a parallel query system, it's a data flow engine, um, and and they've been data flow engines, you know, since the beginning of time.
0: No, but this, uh, but uh, I think what the Hadoop MapReduce did was had people express and think about things in terms of this model right so right
1: right and the database approach was to abstract that away and say don't even think about that just think about you know the answer that you would like to get and and we'll compile that into a data flow program
0: oh yeah stick stick your data in a nice relational schema yeah well that too yeah right right so yeah. then uh, at some point so, how did? By the way, how did Amplab start? I guess uh, there was a precursor lab called Rad Lab, uh, and then based on Dave Patterson's model, Rad Lab wound down, and so then Amp Lab started. So, uh, were you involved right away? So, you and Ion were right away the directors of Amp Lab from the um, beginning. Y- yeah, along
1: with along with Mike Jordan on the machine learning side.
0: So then, uh, what was uh, so? How many of the people at AMP Lab were involved with the previous lab? Um, most of them, in, in, including me, I, I got involved
1: in in the Rad Lab, you know, in the later stages of that project. And um, you know, the, so so there's really two parts of, of the story. Um, one is this Rad Lab part, which is uh, uh, Rad stood for Reliable um, Adaptive and Distribute Distributed Computing, I think, and um, RadLab was was um, was based on a very interesting premise. The idea was that systems were getting so complex that uh, they were getting too hard to manage. There were too many knobs. If you wanted to create, you know, a scalable web app, um, it was just too hard to do because of all the moving parts of the systems. And so following along this idea of uh, what IBM used to call autonomic computing, uh, the idea was, okay, let's instrument, let's have a lot of telemetry coming out of the systems. And then uh, let's use machine learning to basically allow the systems to to uh, to manage themselves. And the insight that 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 Dave Patterson and other guy uh, of the other folks who founded that lab had was that modern systems were so complex that you needed serious machine learning, you know, cutting edge machine learning to be able to do that. So you couldn't take a computer systems person, give them you know the intro to machine learning book, and hope to solve that problem. And so they actually built this team that uh, included you know, computer systems people sitting next to, uh, traditionally, uh, you know, machine learning people who, who who traditionally, you know, these two groups had very little to do with each other. And so that was a five year project. And, and the way I like to say it is, um, you know, they spent at least four of those years learning how to, how to talk to each other. And so towards the end of the, the rad lab, uh, we had probably the best group in the world of, uh, you know, combined systems and machine learning people who actually uh, could could speak to each other. And, and in fact, you know, Spark grew out of that relationship because um, there were machine learning people in the RAD lab who were trying to to, to, to run, uh, you know, iterative algorithms on on Hadoop and were just getting terrible performance. They went over to the, the system side of the lab and they said, hey, you know, can you help us debug this? And when they looked at it, they said, oh, actually, you're not doing anything wrong. This is just the way Hadoop performs on these iterative uh, workloads, and you know, by seeing where the time was going, they realized where the bottlenecks were, and you know, that brought about the whole idea of of, of Spark within-memory computing, and 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 being able to share RDDs, you know, across different parts of the computation, and so on. And so, you know, that's one part of the story was that. The Rad Lab kind of broke down the traditional barriers between machine learning and 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 systems, and you know Amp Lab in some sense was a flip of, of of that relationship. So if you considered Rad Lab as as basically the machine learning people were consulting for the systems people in in Amp we did the opposite. We said, okay, we want we want to do advanced analytics, and the machine learning people are going to you know you know get help from the systems people on how to make these things scale. Um, so that's one part of the story. The other part of the story I, I like to tell for any of the academic uh, people in the audience, which is uh, including uh, people in the academic administration, you know, during the Rad Lab, I was off for a while doing Treviso that we already talked about. Jan Stoika was, was uh, on a leave of absence starting Conviva. And both of us. So when was this? This was mid 2000s. Um, you, you know, if you talk to a customer you would get the same story over and over again, which was, "Hey, we're starting to see more and more data. we can't process it. We, you know we can't keep up. We know that there's interesting information and value in there, but we don't know how to get it. And you would just start hearing this over and over again. And so um, when, when Jan and I each came back from our industrial labs, uh, our industrial uh, leaves, and, and we were talking about, you know what was interesting to work on, we had both seen, you know what, what now People call the big data analytics problem. You know, we started bubbling up. You know, at the very uh, early stages, and and I always, you know, would tell the administrators at, at, at Berkeley and now at Chicago that, you know, had we not been out in industry, you know, we probably wouldn't have seen it. And and people always ask me, you know, how did AMP Lab get out in front of the, this trend so quickly? And and that had a big big part of it was that you know we had been off uh, spending time talking to to, to people in industry and seeing these problems bubble up. So it's really that combination of of the Rad Lab putting machine learning and systems together and you know this opportunity that some of us had to go out and, and really engage with the industry. And that's what came together to form lab.
0: But uh, my understanding is there's also an important element in these labs in the sense that they're real teams in the sense that, you know, I mean, so you see a lot of uh, academic institutes and research groups, but uh, they're almost just names and pictures on a uh, website, and I, I'm not sure to what extent they really coordinate and work on a common problem.
1: Yeah, that, that's uh, a huge, uh, it's a huge factor. And um, the, the way these labs work, and, and uh, if, you, if you're interested in this sort of thing, Dave Patterson wrote a, a paper in uh, the communications of the ACM a few years back called, uh, called How to Build a Bad Research Center or the eight, and, uh, the eight commandments for a bad research center. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, the idea is is if you don't do those you'll build you know, you'll build a good research center. So, you know, one of those ideas is that you get together, you know, in particular the faculty and you agree that you're really going to work together for some period of time. And unlike a lot of these academic collaborations you see that are kind of web pages with a bunch of headshots on them, um the 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 lab model part of it uh, part of the model is that you put a timer on it. So, uh, you know, typically five years amp lab, we ended up doing six years. Um, but you know, uh, people would ask me, you know, with amp lab, they said, are you guys really going to, you know, st- stop amp lab at the end of 2016? And, uh, you know, because it's been so successful and, and, uh, you know, we talked about it you know, as, as a faculty, and we said, Yeah, that's, you know, we signed up for doing this for an out, amount of time, and, you know, we'll figure out new things to do together. So we are, uh, you know, winding down the AMP Lab at the end of this year. Of course, you know, there's still students that are finishing their research, there's still some projects going on, but, uh, you know, there's a new project starting up called RISE that uh, Jan Stoik is going to be running at Berkeley. Uh, and that's certainly going to be informed by AMP Lab, but it's got its own research agenda.
0: So it, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me about AmpLab too is uh, since you and Eon had this experience in industry and you had an idea of what people needed as far as data and data analytics stack, it seemed like you had a vision for what the stack would be. Like it would have a common compute layer. It would it would talk to multiple storage backends, and then there will be libraries on top of this compute layer or. Or am I just over analyzing it, or you guys just kind of stumbled <laughs> <laughs> stumbled onto the a badass stack?
1: Uh... Uh, no, no. So it's actually interesting. The, the, the very first uh, set of discussions we had around Amplab were about systems architecture, in particular software architecture. And it got so crazy that we even you know, went back and started reading kind of just basic uh, you know, papers and books about, about software architecture. Um, just to you know, just to understand what we could kind of specify th- at that early stage, even before the project started, uh, and then what we shouldn't worry about. And so we definitely, at the very beginning of the project, had this idea of a stack. Uh, the name "Badass" was actually Scott Shanker uh, came up with that uh, acronym and its pronunciation, I believe. And we knew we were going to build a stack. We knew that Spark was going to be at the heart of it.
0: So I, I'm of, I'm I'm assuming at that point the uh, you folks had looked at Hadoop MapReduce, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Spark was uh, as had, I mentioned. It, and Hadoop had, MapReduce already had some pieces. It had HYBE. I think it had the machine learning called Mahout, right? So, yep. But the wrong yep. the wrong uh, compute layer. Well, yeah, uh,
1: and and the other thing Hadoop had was HDFS. Uh, you know, the file system. And, you know, a a great decision that we made early on was to to, was to leverage HDFS, you know, really heavily because, you know, so many people had data in HDFS. Um, That was one of the things that made it easy for them to try Spark because you could you could just point Spark at your HDFS file and it would work. And so it was really easy for people to try it out. But yeah, you know, Hive was there. We weren't super aware of it at the very beginning, but but of course, eventually we ported Hive to to run on top of Spark and built a system we called Shark. Um, and and you know, that was our SQL interface for a couple of years until until uh, uh, the the people in the Apache Spark community, uh, including a bunch of our graduates, honestly uh, did did Spark SQL.
0: Yeah, your student, Mike uh, Michael Armbrust.
1: Yeah, Michael and, uh, you know, Reynolds. 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 Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, yep.
0: And uh, and so to what extent uh, do you think that uh, in the early days, what were your expectations for the stack?
1: In terms of uh, adoption? Yeah, or, or? yeah,
0: yeah. Because I remember going to that first AMP camp, and uh, there were already some people in the industry using it, but you... you Definitely, you folks were instrumental in getting more people to adopt it because you were sending students out to meetups and and things like that, right? So that that was that a conscious decision as well? Yeah. So
1: um, so by the way, uh, I don't know when you're going to release this podcast, but you know we're having an event uh, uh, to mark the, uh, the you know the the successful completion, I guess, of of the Amp Lab uh, in uh, mid November, and and we're going to have a panel. Of, uh, of faculty, at least, and maybe some, some outsiders on uh, exactly this question of, of, you know, what did we think was going to happen at the beginning and what really happened and how did it happen? So if people are interested in that, I'd, I'd recommend go to, if you go to the Amp lab website, you'll see uh, information about it.
0: Oh, so um, just staying on that topic, is this, uh, is this event open to the public? I'm not sure yet.
1: <laughs> uh, we've invited uh, anyone who's ever been to an Amp lab retreat. And we're—I think—we're looking to see what the uh, what what the uh, numbers look like. But but anyway, if if somebody's dying to go and and you're not, you haven't heard about it, um, you know, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, okay, so to get back to the question, so I I think you'll get different answers if you ask different people involved in the early stages of of the of the lab about, you know, was it a conscious decision to to boost uh you know adoption, so if you look at um the original amp lab proposal, we do say in it that we want to build um, you know kind of the de facto uh environment for data analytics in the future um but you know the question i guess is. Uh, wh- you know who really thought we would pull that off or not? <laughs> um, but but our our model, um, although we wouldn't admit it to people at the time when we started the project, because it was it was pretty audacious. But our model was Berkeley Unix. We said, you know, if if a bunch of people, you know, sitting in in the computer science building at Berkeley could do Unix uh, and get that kind of adoption, you know, that's a pretty good goal for us to have as well. So you know, having you know audacious goals is, is one thing but then the question is how do you really pull it off and to that i really give credit to the to the people who were graduate students at the time so you know uh uh andy konwinski uh Matei, um you know a bunch of the other people we've already mentioned um uh, they really took it upon themselves to go out and 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 support users um they spent a bunch of time with with companies you know some of the amp lab sponsors very early on uh, you know, making sure that stuff worked, and and seeing how people used it, and seeing you know where the holes were. Uh, but then they really put a huge effort into into building the community. They started meetup groups. We started these amp camps uh, to teach people how to use it. Um, you know, if you posted a question on the news group, you'd get an answer right away. And so the students really took it upon themselves to 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 drive adoption of this thing, and uh, it it made a huge difference.
0: Yeah, and the, and the main ingredient there that you omitted is Strata. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, yeah. When when Strata finally started inviting us, it was a huge part of the story.
0: <laughs> um. So, uh, at at what point did you start hearing from uh, other academic researchers? Because uh, the other thing that I noticed too is at some point, you know, how in at uh, there was a there was a period where a lot of academics were publishing papers uh that cited Hadoop or used to do right and then at some point yep. they started doing that with spark
1: right i mean you know we were very conscious of other projects that were going on you know there there were there were at least two other groups that noticed this problem with iterative computing in spark there was a, a project called haloop at uh, university of washington there was a group called uh, project called twister uh that i I forget where what, it was about, exactly. what about what uh, about
0: uh, what about your old professor in Irvine? What is it called, Asterix?
1: Yep, there was uh, Mike Carey um, was doing uh, the Asterix project at Irvine. So you know there there are definitely a, a, a bunch of groups uh, doing these sorts of things. Um, boy, I don't know uh, and when. And then and then, uh,
0: and then uh, at, at nowadays uh, academics use uh, Spark a lot now too, right? So in terms of
1: it. they do but yeah they i mean spark is you know for one thing it it's kind of people like to do to us what we did to hadoop which was <laughs> you know come up with some cases where 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 you can run a lot faster and and do that performance analysis but but a lot of people are also using spark as a substrate and then and then building new functionality on top of that so you know, there's a lot of people putting things uh, you know mm-hmm. maybe learning stuff into ml lib you know there's people building other kinds of libraries that either sit on top or below spark um, yeah, the so way yeah, I, I think it's been a really
0: yeah the way I th- the way I think of it is that the Spark API has really been become widespread, and so people yep. people yep. Uh, are really uh, uh, dev- dedicated to building applications now on top of Spark. For what you know, for you know, for whatever limitations Spark may have, it's just that now you have access to developers, people who know how to use it and uh, and uh, companies that support it but by the way the other thing that you folks did early relatively uh, is that uh, you also provided a lot of tools to make it easy for people to use spark on Amazon web services yeah so kind of that's that right. using the cloud uh, i I remember actually uh, just going to the first amp camp and uh, wow so I can just use this on Amazon now you know? so right. you you provided you provided all of the of the tools to make that happen, yeah, yeah. well, I
1: mean, that's what you know uh, people realized and and not not just the faculty, in fact, maybe not even primarily the faculty, but you know the the students as well. And we also had you know some really good programmers and 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 staff folks working on the project. But you know, people realized that um, uh, that in order for that to catch on, it, it it had to be, you know, it had to be usable. It had to be. Uh, it had to be easy to experiment with it. Uh, and then it had to be easy to, 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 you know, actually get it up and running. Um, and so yeah, that was always something that, that a lot of the people in the lab spent time on. Um, and you know, one thing I tell people is there was way more research going on in the lab uh, than just what you see in the badass stack. I mean, if you if you look, if you go to the web page, you, you'll see something like 200 academic uh, publications on all sorts of topics. And so you know, not everything that was done in the lab ended up in the badass stack. And, and a lot of the the, the the decision of whether it ended up in there or not was whether, you know, the student who was doing the research wanted to put the extra time into, you know, ease of use, making sure the thing worked, make sure it didn't break other things and so on. All You know, all the things you need to do when, when you're really building software for for people to use. And, and some students thought that was important and wanted to do it. And others, um, yeah you know, we're we're more interested in in looking at at some of the other research aspects of what they were doing
0: so I'll rattle off a few projects out of the amp lab and kind of uh g- give an assessment and uh tell me if you agree right so spark obviously huge success uh so li and then uh libraries that sit on top of spark shark uh no gone now spark SQL. <laughs> uh m- right m l ML-, well, the- ml mllib success uh yep. Bl- blink i think is somewhere inside spark SQL. is that right or is uh, it's
1: going to be i think if it's not already it will be i think parts of it are yeah
0: um Tachyon, now called Alexia success yeah right so yep. uh in fact yep. i was uh i was just speaking with the uh, hy yesterday and uh, they're going to announce their product so it, it yep. also became a company um yep. You know, one of the projects I loved, but uh, maybe it was just too late uh, towards the end of the cycle of the lab, uh, Keystone ML. Uh-huh. Yeah. So kind of, uh, I like the idea. I like what you folks were trying to do, but uh, it just never had the same amount of resources that some of the, these earlier projects had, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, Keystone, I think, um, uh, you know, I think it... it Actually had a fair amount of influence, so you know inside Spark now there's you know ML pipelines that that I think uh, were at least uh, inspired in in part from from Keystone, and in some at at, at one point these were the same. Uh, they were, I believe actually one project. And then they forked because the Spark community had a certain set of things that they wanted to get up and running. And the students working on Keystone, you know, had had kind of research, uh, a a research agenda that they wanted to pursue. that was different than what, um, you know, the Apache Spark people wanted to put in the in in the release so um you know i i think keystone actually has had a lot of impact and i think it it could still have a lot more
0: um yeah and it will but, i think it will kind of that that the basic uh, idea as you point out uh, is going to influence many other uh groups or even it's who knows it may even show up at rice right so the yeah. new lab
1: yeah, I mean, back back in the day, that used to be called success for an academic project. Uh, lab kind of moved moved the goalposts a little bit, but um, you know, back in the day, if you did a, a research project and, and built a system and and people used it and were inspired by it, you called that a successful research project. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would uh, yeah, I would product.
0: say I w- yeah. I would say the typical <laughs> academic project uh, the once the grad student uh, graduates, it's it's over, <laughs> right. Right
1: now, it now it's all based on the on you know number of users and, and and you know the valuation you're getting from the VCs
0: and of course the the I forgot to mention uh, one of the most popular com- components of Spark is uh, Spark Streaming, which which to yeah. be honest uh, people still kind of get uh, too caught up on oh well it's not real uh, streaming it's microwatch, it's not one record at a time and uh, so uh, you know latency isn't uh, super low. But then, you know, when you talk to people in industry, most people, most applications are what what you would call near real time anyway. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, so, you know, I, I actually wasn't, uh, well, I was involved in Spark streaming in the early parts of it. And then I, I kind of dropped out of it just cause I had spent the previous eight years <laughs> yeah. working on streaming <laughs> at treviso Um, but you know, one thing I learned at Treviso actually very early was, uh, you know, we, we, we were, uh, had a bunch of discussions with it, with a, a big, uh, clothing retailer and, um, you know, we were showing them how they could get, you know, point of sale data, um, you know, from all their stores right away, they could figure out, you know, before it happened, where they were going to run out of things, where, where certain items were going to be particularly popular, certain colors even could be popular. And, you know, we had, uh, we were working with the technical people there and, you know, they were, they were all excited about the latency, like, you know, you know, and we were saying, oh yes, you know, latency would be, you know, measured in seconds at the, you know, in the worst case. Um, and then, you know, we went and we, we got to the point where us working with the IT folks at this company were, were going to present to the people who actually made the purchasing decision. And, and one of those people said, well, wait a minute, how often, are we, how often do we roll trucks? And, you know, the answer was, well, like three times a week. <laughs> right and right, right. and, the, and the, you know and then he said, Well, so why do we need to know every second what's happening <laughs> um and and you know it's kind of an extreme example but 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 I agree, I think this mini batch versus record at a time thing is a total uh red herring for just about everybody except you know if you're if you're controlling you know. Uh, a self-driving car, or something, uh, or or if you're doing you know super high-frequency trading, you might care about uh, you know ultra ultra record time. Yeah, at that at that point, you're writing your own specialized system. Well, I think that's correct. Yeah, and so um, so you know, and I think a lot of people are starting to to realize this, and and I, I you know, Spark Streaming is getting a, a huge amount of traction.
0: And then the other thing think, too about uh, Spark Streaming is with the structured streaming API, the Spark community. Has made it so that later on, if they wanted a lower latency engine, they can just yep. uh, do that, and then you won't even have to change your code.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know that was uh, what we did in Truviso was that was our whole vision was, you should be able to write the same query over a, a table uh, and as you would over a stream. And in fact, if you wanted to compare current data with historical data, that was just a join. Between the stream and and, and the historic and, and the tables, so um, you know we chose SQL as as the substrate for doing that um, you know that carries all the baggage of of SQL and database systems. I think uh, the structured streaming you know has that advantage that we talked about earlier when when hadoop came out which is it's 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 just a little lower level so it it lets programmers get a little closer to their data you know if that's what they want to do and so i think it's pretty it's it's quite popular but but there's really no fundamental reason this goes back to like research that J- jennifer widham did you know back in the day you know streams are just Tables that you haven't gotten all the data for yet, and so you don't really need a separate language to process them
0: so uh, actually uh, I was just thinking there's a couple of other things that the spark community did that really increased adoption one uh, the Python API that was big, yeah, and for a yep. while you you would say, well, you know uh, the Python API is still behind the Scala API now it's pretty much on par on par and then I think yeah. I think also spark R which started out of Amplab. I guess both of PySpark and Spark R, started out of Amp.
1: Oh, absolutely, Yep. Yeah, no, we, we knew very early on um, that we needed additional languages uh, beyond Scala for, for, for people who were going to write programs against Spark. Uh, in fact, I always say, and I've never actually tested this with, with Jan or, or, or any of the other faculty, but I always uh, said that, you know, if, if we knew at the time the stakes we were playing for, like how popular Spark uh, could become. I'm not sure we would have we would have taken the bet on Scala that we took um uh, because because when, you know, Spark started, you know, 2009, there were just there were not a lot of Scala users out in the world. And um, you know, if we were worried about adoption, we probably would have made a more conservative choice. Um Yeah,
0: I think and you, so, I, I think the Scala community will tell you one of the reasons they got popular was because of Spark. It's the reverse.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and um, you know, this was I believe uh, a decision that was largely driven by the students who were writing the code. Uh, and, you know, at least my opinion, I won't speak for the other faculty, but I'm like, look, if you guys are going to be writing the code, you know, you can pick whatever language you want. But, um, uh, you know, we knew early on that if if Scala was the only way to get at the system, uh, that was going to limit its its usage. And so Python, we started on very early. Um, SQL, of course, we started on very early. And and R, um, we had a number of projects that that allowed you to use R uh, with Spark in different ways. And then Spark R, you know, made that more complete. But but very early on uh, in the AMP lab, you could run certain parts of R against Spark.
0: All right, so the... Uh, hey, oh, hey, one more thing. Yeah, yeah. You
1: forgot GraphX. Oh, yeah. Gra-
0: yeah. So GraphX, uh, as I understand it, is now kind of uh, getting more usage. and But now the Databricks folks are doing some serious uh, rethinking of how they're going to do graphs, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but it's also uh, it also uh, was one of these projects w- that uh, actually attracted a lot of people early on because uh, uh, at least uh, people who came out of Hadoop, some of the examples that uh, some of the early examples as you're learning Hadoop had to do with graphs. So I think Matei kind of uh, mapped that over to uh, Spark as well, mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah, and uh, y- you know, uh, boy. Uh, I was I was just given a talk on some of this stuff, so it's it's kind of fresh in my mind. But you know, the Databricks people did a survey uh, in 2015. They've just done another, they've released another one that I haven't seen the details of yet. But uh, in 2015, they surveyed Spark users, uh, you know, asking them questions about you know which components do they use and so on. And I believe the number in 2015 was that 88% of the people that answered the survey said they used at least two different interfaces. Uh, to Spark, and uh, a large number of them use three interfaces or four interfaces. And so, you know, this idea of, um, it, you might remember in the database community, you know, a bunch of people, mostly led by Mike Stonebreaker, were going around saying, you know, one size doesn't fit all. You have to build specialized systems if you want, you know, this type of access or that type of access. If you want analytics, you build the system. If you want transactions, you build a different system. You know, if you want scientific data, you build a, a third system uh, and, and so and,
0: on. The, and each system requires a different startup <laughs> well that it's yeah and
1: then there of course you need to build the ecosystem around those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but um you know spark got a lot of its popularity because it offered so many different ways uh, uh, of getting at the data for for so many different types of applications and and i think that remains uh, one of the most powerful things about spark so i'm looking at and, the sur-
0: and, i'm looking at the survey results right now so data frames just jump out right people are, yep. are using the sql streaming and MLlib, lib and graphics as is- is uh below those four but yeah uh, yeah so definitely people are engaging with multiple interfaces yep. yeah yeah so now you decided to leave berkeley and i've uh, recently accepted uh, the position of computer science chair at university of chicago so first off why leave our beautiful weather and <laughs> and the ground zero for all of tech innovations
1: yeah well that's that is a fair question um so yeah, I, as you can imagine it, it was not an easy decision. Um I spent I was at Berkeley for 17 years and uh we did a lot of great stuff there, you know, even Amp Lab was of course the, the 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 crowning thing that I was able to do there uh or be involved in there but uh you know, we did a, a lot of great things, a lot of great students and faculty and 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 of course being in Silicon or near Silicon Valley at least. Uh, I guess from here it's in Silicon Valley. You know, it was just an amazing thing the Chicago opportunity really kind of caught my imagination. So if you think about kind of the trajectory of computer science uh, since it started in the, you know, very early days, uh, you know, there were very uh, super hard computer science problems that needed to be solved. Things like, you know, how do you write a compiler? Like, how do you do a, uh, a, you know, how do you build a search engine? I mean, how do you do sorting? I mean, just kind of basic things about computing that, 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 that people were working on, you know. Now, as computing gets, you know, deeper and deeper, more deeply and deeply embedded in pretty much every part of the world, a lot of the interesting problems in computer science are, are being motivated from the outside. You know, so looking at, at at different types of applications and and usages usages and or uses, and um, you know, trying to figure out how to build the right types of systems and the right types of interfaces and so on to solve those problems. And so what University of Chicago is trying to do is basically take a huge number of different um, centers of excellence, I guess, for lack of a better term. So if you look at, you know, the social sciences and economics, or you look at policy, or you look at, you know, physics, or even uh, these days, uh, molecular engineering, or you look at what's going on in the life sciences, um, you know, all of these uh, fields are just becoming more and more data-driven, more and more uh, computationally uh, motivated. And um, at Chicago, they had come up with a vision to, to basically build an integrated uh, computation effort uh, and computation and data effort, I should say, uh, you know, to address these new types of applications. And so... Um, in some sense i got the opportunity to come uh to a place that that was already headed in the right direction and been hiring a lot of really good people uh in computer science uh and then basically step on the accelerator of that um and uh you know try to try to build a next generation uh computer science effort and 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 also a data science effort
0: so you described an effort that strikes me as uh being big, right, so involving many parts of the campus, but do you envision uh, bringing something similar to Amplab to Chicago in the sense of something uh, smaller and a lot more focused with an expiration date? <laughs> um, well, I'm a big fan of the expiration date
1: uh, idea, so absolutely. Um, you know, the one of the key uh, things about AmpLab, in addition to you know the amazing uh, you know people involved, was the interaction we had with with industrial sponsors. Oh uh,
0: yeah 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 oh, yeah yeah. I I was fortunate enough that you guys invited me to your retreats, and it's amazing the amount, yeah. of, the amount of information that flows both ways. Yeah exactly. Yeah.
1: And so uh, you know a lot of our you know the ability, especially in the early days of the project, to to really figure out what are the important problems to work on to to understand how what we were thinking about fits in what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, you know, a lot of that came because we had uh, a very dedicated group of of companies that, that were sending, you know, really some of their smartest people to come work with us and the students and, and, and give us feedback and so on. And so, you know, I definitely want to try to leverage that same type of, uh, uh, industrial interaction in, in things that we do here at, at, at Chicago. Um, and you know, it's going to be a little different because, uh, you know, we are geographically, um, uh, you know, further from, from a lot of those companies, uh, you know, on the other hand, there's an amazing ecosystem in in chicago and it's not just tech but you know it's really it's it's banking it's manufacturing it's transportation uh the city of chicago is is doing a lot of amazing things with information technology and and smart city initiatives and so it might not look exactly you know the 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 same configuration that amp lab had but but certainly that idea of of uh intensive engagement with people outside the university i think that i think that's a huge uh you know multiplier of, of what you can get done
0: actually one of the things that uh we don't talk enough about are these you know at amp lab you guys have this thing called uh, that are the poster sessions that take place in, in in an evening and uh people are drinking wine so people are uh having fun but at the same time every student uh, or every student project is out there, and the industrial sponsors are are uh, grilling the students. So yep. they're they're really getting this personalized feedback from uh, from people in industry.
1: Yeah, uh, you know that's one of the the really great things about uh, the way the project's set up. And and you know the way I like to describe it is so, so there's two of those meetings a year, plus you know you know occasionally. Individual meetings with some of the companies, as well as things like AMP Camp and so on. But you know, if you're a graduate student in a project like AMP Lab, by the time you've graduated, you've presented your work, you know, maybe a dozen times at least to some of the best people, you know, in the industry and 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 elsewhere. Um, so you're really really good at <laughs> at making your arguments and getting your ideas across. And and if you talk to the AMP Lab students, um, you'll see that right away. I mean, they're just they're just um, you know, such great presenters and 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 really understand
0: uh you know how to how to get their ideas across to people. So Mike, what about the notion of as you described earlier, uh when you and Jan came back from your sabbaticals doing startups, you you had an idea of kind of a rough idea of what you should be building as far as this uh big data stack. So in many ways AMP lab started out with some focus. So, what about the notion of of doing a lab in Chicago along those lines, where you kind of sit around with a bunch of smart people at Chicago and figure out what are we going to build? What's our goal? Yep,
1: I'm spending a lot of my time having conversations like that, uh, and you know there are some efforts already going on that are, that are pretty interesting. There's 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 one in uh, computer science called uh, the Ceres uh, Center for Unstoppable Computing. This is run by a guy named uh, Andrew Chen, who's a senior faculty member here, but spent a bunch of time at Intel uh, and elsewhere before that. And he's actually building this type of lab that, that has um, you know, industrial sponsors and, and, and a set of problems that people are working on. Um, it's not exactly the, the same as, as kind of the Dave Patterson Berkeley model, but, but it's got a lot of that. Uh, Same, same, same uh, motivation. Um, There's some really interesting projects around urban data uh, that, 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 that are, that involve people from, you know, the the national labs, from the social sciences, uh, even from, you know, ecology and, and things like that. Um, And so, you know, and there's a bunch of uh, health related and medicine related uh, big data projects going on here as well. Um, so yeah, we're we're kind of brainstorming uh, a bunch of those, and um, you know I I think there'll be a few efforts like that that uh, you'll start hearing more about in the near future.
0: Uh, the the actual going on retreat that's actually I, I, it turns out that's not unique to Amp Lab. There's all there's other academic labs that have sponsors. They go on retreat, but I've never I've I've you know I've never come across a group of. Uh, uh researchers that work together so well as the one at amp lab where uh uh, the students were really encouraged to present very early on uh the projects and and the industrial sponsors were encouraged to give honest feedback yep um and
1: you know i i I think um (laughs) if you ever get the chance to interview dave patterson about this you probably should uh because because my guess is that dave would would tell you that you know, the, the Berkeley had been doing those types of retreats for many, many years, uh, long before rad lab, even, you know, um, and so, you know, you could sort of argue about where, where the, where the idea came from. I mean, I, it was before my time. So, um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, when, 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 I mean, I guess it's a funny story when, when, uh, We started up Amplab after after Rad Lab and and it sort of became apparent that that I was going to sort of take the lead in kind of getting the Amplab off the ground. You know, I said, okay, what are the things I want to change from the Rad Lab? And one of the first things I thought about was, you know, these two retreats a year are just so much work. I mean, the students have to you know, do all this work to present, prepare, you know, we have to do all the logistics, you know, it drives our staff crazy because they have to handle, you know, all, all this travel arrangements. And, and, you know, so I'm going to, you know, as, as the new, uh, you know, sheriff in town, I'm going to dictate that we only have one retreat a year and um that was that was one of the things i wanted to change and um it was funny i started going out talking to companies trying to get them to think about sponsoring the lab and um you know so they asked the obvious question saying well okay if we if, if we you know put in some money you know what do we actually get from sponsoring the lab and uh, the first time it happened i said you know, well, you know, you get to come to our retreat meetings and uh this person, person asked me, Oh, well, how many retreat meetings are there a year? And I oh, thought no. about it I was like, Oh well there's there's two. <laughs> 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 Cause I just felt like that one wasn't gonna sound like enough value uh, to them. But but that was really, really fortunate because as you said, um it's a it's a huge amount of work but but you know the benefits uh are just tremendous for the students and and, and for the faculty and and for the research and hopefully for the industrial people as well. Uh, And that cadence of doing it twice a year, uh, you know, keeps people current. I think if you try to just do it once a year, like a lot of places do, it ends up being more like a a dog and pony show and not not particularly uh, interactive. Yeah, the relationships
0: don't get built over time. Yeah the uh, the other thing i i found out much later on is i started encountering at re- at these retreats i started to encounter uh some of these uh industrial sponsors who end up uh, who end up spending time embedding within amplab was that common for like i don't know for how long like a month or so or whatever
1: for industrial sponsors
0: yeah yeah that they would spend time uh, at amplab uh maybe even uh, working out of amp for a while did that happen right we we had a, a
1: a couple instances where things like that happened. typically on on specific projects like the genomics uh project that we did had had actually some people from microsoft who spent a bunch of time there and um you know we would have people come visit for a little while but um just kind of the logistics of it um made it difficult uh you know, at the height of uh, membership in the Amplab, we probably had over 30 active companies. So we just didn't have the kind of the bandwidth to, to handle, uh, you know, that many visitors. But it's an interesting model. It's another way to do it. You know, that it comes down to having to be you need the right people from industry. You need people who are outgoing, you know, who are going to be willing to kind of walk around and and talk to people and really dig into what they're doing. Otherwise, they just sit there.
0: So uh, this has been great. So we'll, I look forward to this uh, close closing ceremony of Amp Lab, and uh, I'm sure we'll run into each other. So full disclosure: Mike and I are both involved with Databricks and Alexia. and yep. I'm also actually I have an affiliation with University of Chicago too. I'm an advisor for the Center for Data Intensive Science and the Open Commons Consortium, which uh, excellent. I'm afraid I'm all I do is show up. To a few meetings a year.
1: All right. Well, if you show up here, you better let me know. So that's yeah. good. Look forward to seeing you here. And I'll also say, for full disclosure, that uh, Ben's one of the speakers at the uh, AmpLab uh, end of project uh, event because uh, he can provide uh, you know perspective on sort of the evolution of of the big data industry and 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 you know hopefully some nice things about Amp and, and 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 involvement. And, and I was but, uh,
0: I was the fir- one of the first people who started getting excited and writing about Spark
1: absolutely i mean from the very early days so uh, we really appreciate that
0: you know i was looking at some of those uh things i wrote in the early days i'm going man i was a little over the top in my enthusiasm because <laughs> because <laughs> well, uh, turned
1: out
0: to be right though. yeah 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 but uh, if you look at uh, version 0.5 uh, man, the, there are a lot still a lot of problems you know but uh, uh yep. but at that point you know i was coming out of using pig and hive and i just got a hold of this wow this thing is amazing. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think that happened with a lot of people. I mean, I think that's,
1: that's a big reason why it took
0: off. Well, all right. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, Ben. We now have over 80 free reports on many topics in data science, big data, and AI. They cover trends, tools, techniques, and applications. Go to O'Reilly.com data slash free for a complete list of our free reports. You can follow Mike Franklin on Twitter at Amplab. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.